please uh, have a seat, thank you, and uh, open your Bibles to Genesis. We are in a Bible study now in the book of Genesis, and we are in chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. If you need a Bible, we have extra Bibles available. If you have uh, no scriptures to look at uh, in digital or print form, we have extra print Bibles available. Anybody need one? Just raise your hand. We'll get a Bible. Yes, we do need one. Mike, would you? Or back? Praise the Lord. Anybody else? Another guy over there. James needs a Bible. Awesome. Genesis 11. Thank you. Anybody else? We've got more. That's good. Just good to read along. So we are just taking the scriptures as they come to us and going through them, trying to gain some application and understanding for our lives today. Uh, before I begin, uh, I want to tell you in advance that next Sunday, we are going to, uh, instead of singing, we're just going to devote the first half hour of our service to pray together. Uh, it's just prayer for students, for schools, for churches. All right, those, those three campus ministries, local churches, and for students, high school, college. So we'll come in, we'll get into small groups, and uh, I'll just direct you through about a half an hour of prayer, 10 minutes maybe in each of those three categories. All right? So it's real good for the church to pray together. You know, that's the first thing the church did when the church was formed. They were actually praying when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then after everybody got saved, they all gathered together and they prayed and they heard the word of God. And it's sort of interesting and I'm not putting down singing. I love it as much as anybody, but there really wasn't any mention of singing in the first church in Acts chapter two, but there was fellowship and eating together and, and prayer. So it's good. It's a good spiritual discipline. So we'll do that next week. God hears our prayers. So we will pray in faith and believe him for his blessing on the local church, Big C Church here in Ithaca, of which we are a part of that. So uh, I'm Pastor Scott. If I haven't met you, welcome. I'm the senior pastor here. My son Andrew is uh, doing hospitality out there with his wife Tinsu. He's my assistant pastor. Uh, Eric, who normally leads in worship, is away this week and next, which is partly why we're praying next week. It's just a good filler, <laughs> uh, so to speak. So yeah, God bless you. I look forward to meeting you. Again, we'll have a church picnic here on the 10th, and that'll give you a chance we can get to know each other a little bit better. That's the whole point of that. So here we are in Genesis chapter 11, and uh, we are going to be introduced to uh, a man named Abraham. His first, we're, his first, we are first introduced to him. His name is Abram. Abram. Uh, and if you're familiar with the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we have Abel, Enoch, and Noah, and then we come to Abraham. And in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, there's a bit written about him and his wife, Sarah, right? So they came as a tag team. They were a married couple. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk about Abraham this morning. Uh, when we get to him, but I will take the text as it appears to us. We finished last week in chapter 11 with um, 
a man by the name of Nimrod, <laughs> an interesting man who was uh, revealed to us in chapter 10 of Genesis as a powerful hunter. He was a mighty hunter. And uh, he had a name for himself. He was very powerful and very popular. In fact, others would come along after him and they'd say, oh, you're like Nimrod, right? Um, so Nimrod was an influential, powerful, popular man that we determined from our careful study of the Word of God that he carried over those, uh, his hunting prowess, if you will, into gathering people unto himself. And it's in chapter 10, if you maybe just flip back there if you would, chapter 10 of Genesis, verse 8, it says that Cush fathered Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. So uh, it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. In the beginning of his kingdom, that's the first mention of the word kingdom in the whole Bible. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. So Nimrod was the leader of this city called Babel. And in the middle of this city, they built a tower that they, they just kept one brick on top of another. They wanted their tower to reach up to heaven, right? So we've learned that uh, this kingdom that he was building, building, excuse me, it was to make a name for themselves. It's really what it, it's actually what it says. Flip over now to chapter 11, uh, this building of the city in the land of Shinar, uh, verse 3, Genesis 11:3. Then they said to one another, one another, come, let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's the kingdom of man. And it was being built with a whole lot of organization and effort and work. And it was all for their own glory. And it was a spectacular thing, for sure. You can be sure. In fact, there's remnants of that in Iraq today that have been unearthed from archaeologists, okay? Well, as you know from our study last week, God intervened. He could see this was going in, a, in not a good direction. And so God came down and he confused the language of all the people. Everybody was speaking the same language. They all had good communication skills. God, do we need to learn good communication skills? And he, he gave them different languages and it, and it stopped the building project. And then men took their language and the, those who they connected with and they dispersed around the world. And that's what populated the earth after Noah's flood. So the logical question then is, well, then what? And that's where we pick up the story. Then what is 
Genesis chapter 11, verse 10, and it starts with a genealogy. And it's the genealogy of Shem, who is one of the three sons of Noah. And I'll just tell you, the spoiler, the then what, is God then wants to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men. So we've had Nimrod building a, a human, a manly kingdom, a kingdom of man, which was very glorious and hard work, and they were getting all the glory was so they could make a name for themselves. And so then, rather than God just stepping back and going, well, you guys all figure it out now that you're all speaking these different languages. No, he now is going to zero in on one sole individual, a man named Abram and his wife Sarah, who were living over in Mesopotamia, in Ur, a city called Ur, and God called him and chose him. And he responded by faith. And God's sovereign kingdom was established in Abram's heart. And he journeyed from that foreign land over into what we now know as Israel. And from Abram came the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And from them came Jesus, and from Jesus comes the church. So you see, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. You guys know that song? Yes. <laughs> I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord, right arm left. <laughs> All right. He is our father, and we'll, we'll see that. We actually have a lot in common with Abraham. We have a lot in common with Abraham. Primarily, and I'll just I'll go again to the spoiler. Flip over to chapter 15, verse 6. This is Paul the Apostle builds the whole doctrine, one of the foundation stones of Christianity off this verse. He, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him for righteousness. He, was, he believed by faith, and he received the righteousness of God was imputed to him by faith. It was counted into Abraham's life, right? And it made him right with God. And Paul builds the whole doctrine of justification by faith. In Romans chapter 4, Abraham was saved just like any other person today is saved through faith in God, in his word. And when God sees saving faith, he imparts the righteousness of Christ that we didn't earn and we didn't deserve it. It's not merited on something that we've done, unlike Nimrod, right? We're going to make a name for ourselves. God is going to build his kingdom. It's not by might or power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah. Well, who do you say that I am? Peter, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. 
Well said, Peter. And upon my, this rock, I will, I, I will build my church. I will build my church by his grace, by his mercy and his kindness that touches a life, your life or mine. So that's where this is all headed, okay? By the time we get to chapter 12 and, and God speaks to Abraham and, and gives him his promise, the whole rest of the Bible is the living out of that promise from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to the 12 sons to the church until the end of time. So... I'm answering the question, then what? Man has done his thing, and now God's going to do his thing, but it's going to be by his power. It's going to be by his grace. And guess what? God is going to get the glory. Man said, we'll make a name for ourselves. And when people look at the church, and when they look at the Jew, they go, there must be a God. And that's actually true even today. If you understand the history of the Jewish people, in A.D. 70, their city was destroyed by the Roman general Titus Vespasian. And they, they, did, they leveled the city to the ground. And the Jews were finally dispersed from the land. They're gone. For 2000, about 2,000 years, they did not have a homeland a flag, they weren't recognized internationally, they were just like living around the world and among everybody until 1948 when they were reestablished as a country. Somebody once said, and it, maybe it's a good analogy, it would be like the Native Americans taking over North America again. Like they're just kind of dispersed now among us. But for them to rise back up to sovereign power that's the miracle. There must be a God. And it actually was all prophesied. That's another whole story. We're going to get into all kinds of interesting things here as we get into Genesis, into Abraham's life. We're going to read about his, his nephew named Lot. You all know Lot? Where did Lot live? <laughs> yeah, that's a hard story. Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm already anxious about getting to that part of Scripture. There's a lot of dicey stuff in there about Sodom. But we're not going to shy away from hard stuff. We're going to look at it, and we're going to try to get some understanding of what God does, of how he behaves uh, toward men. So let's read Genesis 11, starting at verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. After he fathered him, Shem lived 500 years and fathered sons and daughters. Uh, so if you total it up, uh, he lived 100 years, then he lived 500 years after he gave, you know, fathered this man. Total of 600 years, okay? That's a long time, right? He lived 600 years. Um, by the way, just flip over chapter 9, uh, verse 29. Shem's dad was Noah. Noah, in 9.29, said Noah lived 950 years. 
Shem lived 600 years. He lived one-third less time than his papa. Okay? And then it tells us that his son, Arphaxad, I think I'm saying that right, lived 35 years, verse 12, and he fathered Shelah. After he fathered Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and fathered sons and daughters. So he lived 435 years. So he lived one-third less time than his father and about half the time of his grandpa. Interesting. And then it, it goes on. So maybe won't have to go through all this. So verse 14, Shelah lived 30 years, fathered Eber. We already know from pre last week, Eber. Uh, he's an essential man, right? Uh, Eber is where we get the name Hebrew. Entomologically, am I saying that right? Etymologically, not entomol, that's bugs. <laughs> Etymologically, uh, right? Eber is Hebrew. So uh, he had a son named Peleg. Uh, Peleg uh, and, let's see, Eber lived 464 years. Peleg lived 239 years at the end of verse 19, if you do the math. He lived 30 years. And then after this birth, 209, 239 years. So you see, life is incrementally getting shorter. Very interesting. So now he's living about a third of the time of great, 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 great grandpa Noah or Shem. I, I don't know, I'm losing track here, but you, you get the point. Um, I think a real simple understanding or application that we can draw from all this is that death is coming sooner than later. It's, that's pretty clear. And in fact, as the story goes, um, Terah, who was Abram's father, had three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran died before his father. So not only is death coming sooner than later, Sometimes death is coming unexpectedly. So, I say to you, <laughs> are you prepared to meet your God? You know, the Lord told an interesting parable in Luke chapter 12 about a man who had an abundance of stuff. Actually, he had so much stuff that he didn't have enough room to store it all. And so I'll, I'll change the parable just a bit, if you'd give me permission, to make it a little more applicational. So he had so much stuff, he went down the road and got one of those little mini storage units, <laughs> like several of them. And he put all his stuff in there. And he said, ah, I'm all set for the rest of my life. I think I'll just eat and drink and be merry. And Jesus is telling this story. And he said, of that man, he said, God said to him, you fool, your soul is required of you tonight. You're not ready because you're trusting in your stuff. You've had a desire to establish your life here on earth. And there is a day of reckoning. And the Lord's very honest and blunt. He said, that's foolish. If your whole 
endeavor, being here at Cornell, by the way, is to get the Ivy degree so you can get the postgraduate degree or maybe the postdoc degree and then the fellowship and get the six or eight or nine digit income. You got your focus on the wrong thing. You fool. The Lord is saying, wake up. Life may come on unexpectedly. Your life may end. So believe in the Lord with all your heart and you shall be saved. The Lord didn't stop in that little parable. and he, he Actually, he said, look, seek first the kingdom of God. And all those other things that we wring our hands over What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Will I graduate? Who will I marry? What job will I get? Where will I live? What will he look like? (laughs) What will she look like? (laughs) Will she love me after 10 years of living with me? (laughs) Yeah. Every single guy is a car salesman, ladies. I'm just telling you right now. (laughs) They say they love you. They don't know what love means. (laughs) Not really. Love's sacrificial. Is that how you feel? Is that how you feel? It's what you think. That's agape love. It's unconditional. There's nothing about the attraction or the, the beauty of your character that of us that drew Jesus to come here. Agape love is like he made a decision. I'm going to love you just because I love you. It's because of who I am. In spite of all that, that's love. So life was getting shorter, and in some cases, the end of life came unexpectedly. So just a point of interest towards you to give you this morning as I observe this genealogy, which... You know, it's a genealogy. There's 10 names here. It's like not super awesome, right? But uh, here it is. It's just a simple observation. I wrote in each verse here the total years of life, and that's how you came to the conclusion, just by observations. Pretty easy. So where are we? Let's pick it up at verse 22. Sarah lived 30 years, fathered Nahor. Nahor, verse 24, lived 29 years, and fathered Terah. And after he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the genealogy of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran was the father of Lot. Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. All right? Haran died before his father in his native land in Ur of the Chaldeans. By the way, um, really smart people who are critical of the Bible, they jump all over verse 28 and they go, wow, it's Ur of the Chaldeans. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We all know from ancient history, the Chaldean people group didn't even come onto the scene for hundreds and hundreds of years. So the Bible's got some errors. Well, what the, the answer to that criticism 
is that Moses wrote this. Moses wrote, Moses wrote this, okay? He inherited writings from, no doubt, Adam and Noah, no doubt, right? Records that, right? We talked about that. Noah kept uh, a journal. He kept a diary. He was very particular about the days of months and times and years and all that happened related to the flood. So Moses comes on the scene hundreds of years later and he inserted the Chaldean people group here for the sake of his readers, to give them a connection to where Abram grew up, okay? So it's not saying that Abram lived at the time of the Chaldeans, that was impossible. But for the sake of uh, readability, I guess you'd say, and connection to the word of God, as Moses wrote it, he, he inserted that, er, which later became associated with people referred to as Chaldeans, and ultimately Babylonians, okay? Uh, so then, verse 29, Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. <laughs> uh, sorry, I come from a dairy farm, so Milcah is kind of like interesting to me. Uh, and the daughter of Haran, Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. Okay? Uh, Sarah was barren. She had no child. Do you see the contrast here, brothers and sisters? Knowing where this is going. This is, this is going into the life of Abram, Abraham. And we have already, what a contrast. The, this is full stop. Okay? We've had genealogy. We've had marriage and birth and sons and daughters and sons and daughters. Meanwhile, we've had Nimrod building his kingdom. But now God's going to build his kingdom. And he's going to do it through a man named Abram, whose wife is unable to conceive. So who's going to get the glory? This, this is like full stop. It makes no sense. If God's going to, and God does, he chooses Abram by his sovereign will. He chooses this man, pulls him out of this pagan culture, who's got a wife who can't have children. And yet, then God promises him Dude, from you, people around the world for generations to come are going to come from your family line. Got it. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Might be helpful if we had a kid, just even one, right? So who's getting the glory? It's not by might or power. It's by my spirit. God is going to be glorified, church. God's going to be glorified. And Abram and his wife, Sarah, are going to be blessed. They're going to be laughing their heads off when Isaac's finally born. Because it's going to come at a time in life when it was impossible, except for God's power, supernatural power. And blessing on them. And blessing on them. Look, man, to not be able to have children... That was a shame and a disgrace. And you can be sure, people started yapping. Oh, something's wrong. Who's it's probably sin in Abram's life? Unconfessed. Or, you know, it just, that's our human nature, is to just think of people, there's, there's something wrong, there's suspect. 
And it's all in our own mind and our own making. And they had to live with that. And you know what's interesting? Their son Isaac married a woman named Rebecca. And she had the same problem. She was not able to conceive. They were married, I think, for 20 years. Tried to have children. Pretty sure that was the timing. He was 40 when they were married. He was 60 when, when Esau and Jacob were born. And then Jacob, who inherited the promise from Grandpa through his dad Isaac, he married a woman named Rachel, and she had the same problem. Guess who's getting the glory? Can't figure it out. Head spin. You try to just analyze the, the, the start of the church. A fisherman with no formal education stands up and preaches to a crowd of people, and he simply says, Jesus is alive. Just outside of town, there's an empty tomb. Go check it out. He's alive. And furthermore, he went back to heaven where he came from, and he's seated at the right hand of God, and he's coming again. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, who would come upon Peter... Hearts were convicted of sin. People repented and became believers. And the church was born. Can't, you can't explain that. You really can't explain the miracle of new birth. Except that it's all God's working in His grace. That's why we're going to pray next week. Because He's still building His kingdom. One soul at a time. Through the witness of everybody in this room and in various churches around this community. You know, you actually, you come to the New Testament, speaking of being barren, right? Kind of heartbreaking, honestly, but um, it's good news because you're familiar with the story in Luke chapter 1. starts with this old man, <laughs> that guy named Zacharias. And um, we laugh about this. Uh, I'm looking at Mike and Bev because we've had this Thursday night weekly Bible study going on for years. And we went through Luke, and it, in the King James, it says that Zacharias was stricken in years. <laughs> All right, so I'm 65. So stricken, that's, somehow that feels right. <laughs> it's just a little harder to get going in the morning. Anyway, he and his wife Elizabeth were elderly people, and they'd never had children. And then Gabriel shows up to Zacharias while he's doing his service of incense offering there in the temple in Jerusalem. And Gabriel says, how you doing, man? <laughs> he goes, guess what? Your wife's going to have a baby. And I want you to call him John. John the Baptist. So Zacharias finishes his work, goes back home, and he's uh, like, hey, babe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? She gets pregnant. And she said, the Lord has taken away my disgrace. Do 
Don't live with shame, brothers and sisters. Don't live with shame. Take it to the Lord. He loves you. And what was true of that woman is true of every one of us. We all have skeletons in the closet, maybe some things that haven't been revealed yet, even to your dearest friends or spouses. And that, there's just this under the radar in your own life, there might be a sense of shame or disgrace. It's very painful. You all know what I'm talking about. And the Lord's grace touched that man and woman. And she was relieved. And you know what? She didn't go out and blab it all over the place. Ha, 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 You said all those things. Guess what? I'm six months pregnant. <laughs> you know? Woman with gray hair and a cane. I'm pregnant. <laughs> it's really weird. No, she went out into the hill country. She just kind of separated and worshipped. Until one day a knock came on her door. You know the story. And it was Mary. And the Holy Spirit came out on Elizabeth. And she said, blessed is the Lord. The mother of my Savior has arrived. And inside of Mary was a little nine-week-old, maybe six-week-old Jesus. He was about this long. <laughs> but he was forming inside of her. Lord loves to be glorified. He was glorified in Zacharias and Elizabeth's life. He loves to be glorified in building his kingdom. Verse 31, Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son's Abram's wife, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur, to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran and dwelt there. And that gets confusing, right? Because we got a man named Haran and we got a place named Haran. They're two different things entirely, right? So it, that happens frequently in the Bible and it can get confusing, admittedly. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord had said to, now this is my new King James. It says, now the Lord had said. And I know if you're reading ESV, it just simply says the Lord said. Okay? But I'm going to show you before we get done here that the Lord actually had spoken to Abram when he was back in Ur of the Chaldees. Okay? We're going to see that in a few minutes. So it's actually more appropriate, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family, from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Now, this is God had spoken. Jehovah had spoken to Abram. And he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. So verse 2, there's like personal blessings. You're going to see the word blessing is used here five times. Bless, blessing, blessed, right? So it's, there's a personal blessing. And then in verse 3, there's a global blessing. All right? I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And there you go. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth. That means Jew and Gentile. That means any color, any ethnicity, any gender, any age, and at any time. In you, Abraham, 
I'm going to build my kingdom through you. That's what that's all about right there. In you, Abraham, all the families. We're going to see this in Galatians chapter 3. We'll look at that in a minute. But Paul picks up this, this promise made to, at the very beginning in Abram's life. The gospel is right here. Embedded in that promise is the gospel that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul actually says that in, he, in Galatians 3. That God preached the gospel before the gospel actually happened. And he preached it to Abraham when he gave him this promise. Embedded in that is the church. Embedded in that is Israel, the Jewish people. God established his kingdom through one man and his wife who can't conceive, who finally did conceive at the ripe old age of 90. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Make note of that. If you have a pen, just write into that next to that verse 75. That was Abram's life. He's, he's tagged here now for his age, okay? And that's important because we're going to find out as we go through this story over the next several weeks that he was 100 years old when Isaac was finally born. So he waited, yes, 25 years for the fulfillment of the promise. That's called perseverance. That's called patience. Abram was not a perfect man. Abram had fears. We're going to see that as we go through this. He had doubts. He had a lot of questions. He posed those to God. He had plans of his own, suggestions of how maybe we could have some kids since it's not happening. Verse 5, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son. He adopted him. He adopted the son of his brother. He adopted his nephew. These are real people. And, you know, Abram becomes a role model for all Christians, really. As I pointed out to you in chapter 15, verse 6, right? He believed faith was given from God. And that's just what happens to us. So Abram's life becomes a role model for all Christians. We believe, and then we set out on a journey toward heaven. And between here and there, a whole lot of stuff happens. And there's, there's growth and maturity and there's failures. And Abram throws his wife under the bus a couple of times. Nearly costs his marriage. Believe it or not. He did. They had marital disputes. You're gonna see, we're going to see this. Difference of strong difference of opinion of how to go about things and what to do. Yeah, so... I'm just pointing out that there are real people who lived in a real place. Like, they experienced the unexpected premature death of a brother. And he's got kids. Now what do we do? I guess we'll have to adopt him. So he and Sarah took under their wing their nephew Lot. Right? And so Lot, now he's living with them. Right? They didn't plan on that. They had their little tent. Now we've got to put an addition on the tent. <laughs> Make room for Lot. So they... It tells, where are we here? We're in verse 5. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all the possessions that they had gathered, and the souls whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. Now that's a very interesting verse. So they came to the land of Canaan. The souls whom they had acquired 
in Haran. Sounds like they gathered some slaves, doesn't it? That's the natural thought is that, oh, we, we got servants. And we brought them in. We've hired. They've got, they've got employees now to manage their, their goods. Abram had a lot of stuff. Did you guys know that? He was a wealthy man. Abe was a wealthy man. By the time we get to chapter 14, he's got 318 people on the payroll. Is that a small business? I don't know. <laughs> Sounds like a big business to me. Right? He's got a lot of responsibility. He had all kinds of animals, and this was men's wealth at that time was measured by those possessions, right? I guess it's true today. So it sounds like that, you know, he hired a bunch of people. But I agree with some commentators who say, no, it says that he gathered the souls whom they had acquired. More than likely, Abram talked to people about God, and they became followers of his God. So when he left Ur and went north up northern Iraq and stopped there in Haran, he talked, he was a witness. He shared with others the God that he knew, and they became followers and went to work for him. Verse 6, he passed through the land, he's now in Israel, to the place of Shechem as far as the oak tree of Morah, and the Canaanites were in the land. That's the third time now that we've heard that this is either the Canaanites. And by the way, the oak of Morah and, the, and it's the fact that it's connected with Canaan there was pagan worship going on here. There were, he comes to this place and he stops by this oak and he sees that there's a shrine. And he sees that there's, you know, the remains of people who have been worshiping here and it's ungodly. It's, it's a false god. So he's like, wow, what a place we're living in. <laughs> Verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who would appear to him. So he built an altar, right? He worshiped. He thanked God for leading him and showing him where he will now reside. Verse 8, he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west, Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. And we'll stop there. All right, so... Um, just to close this up this morning, go back to Acts chapter 7. Let's just, what time we got here? Yeah, we're good. We'll just finish up here. Acts chapter 7. This would be a perfect way to close. And uh, Lord, pour out your grace now. Acts in the New Testament, book of Acts, chapter 7, uh, Stephen. Uh, this is what Stephen says in verse 2. Stephen said, brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him, God moved him to this land in which you now dwell. 
God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. Okay? That is a remarkable, a remarkable transformation in the life of Abraham. I just want to relate to you a couple of things that, that I read um, that uh, actually, interestingly enough, in one of our fellow Ivy schools, University of Penn, Pennsylvania, UPenn, they have in their museum of archaeology and anthropology all kinds of artifacts. It's called the treasures of, uh, the royal treasures of Ur down at UPenn in their museum. A guy by the name of uh, Leonard Woolley in the early 1920s and 30s, archaeologists went to Iraq and unearthed massive uh, things there from the city of Ur. Why am I telling you that? Because what he discovered was pagan worship. Very intelligent people, highly advanced civilization that had musical instruments that were excellent in craftsmanship in, in their musical instruments and in some of the, the metallurgists. They had all kinds of jewelry, expensive gems and, and precious metals that were used to adorn some of the bodies that they found in the graves. But they found human sacrifice had been involved. And it was all done to a god named Nana, <laughs> who's a moon god. And they built these ziggurats. It was terraced buildings that went up in three or four stages, kind of in a, not like a pyramid, but flat on the top. And then on the top was a temple where they would worship the moon god. Abram's name means exalted father. Sarai's name means princess. Milka's name means queen. Terah's name is associated with the moon god. So it was a very wealthy, highly advanced civilization, Ur. What in the world would possess a man to turn his back on his culture? Everything that was comfortable, all of his dreams. Just eat, drink, and be merry, man. I'm living in, I'm living in the place. What would, in, what would inspire a man to leave all that, turn his back on it, put a few things on an animal, go out with his wife who can't conceive and his nephew Lot and take off for a place he doesn't even know where God wants him to land yet. That's, what, that's the beauty of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, it says, Abram was called to go out, but he didn't know where he was going. Can you imagine that conversation in the car? Are we almost there yet? I don't have a clue. Where are we even going? <laughs> Oh, but he knew. He did not know. Brothers and sisters, we are just like Abraham. God's not going to give us all the answers. What's going to happen 20 years from now? I need to know, Lord. I'll tell you when you get there. You walk with me now. You know, Abraham's life was a life of separation. You're going to see this as we go through this. It was a life of constantly being separated first from his home and from the culture and from his religion 
that he was evidently of an active part in it. It was a separation from his home. It was a separation from his father. It was a separation from his nephew, Lot. We get into chapter 13, and Lot and he had to part company. Lot had his own animals. He had his own people, and it was like, we can't do this again anymore. It was a constant life of separation, first and foremost, from his land. Nobody's ever done that. I was reading uh, Kent Hughes. He said, Abe was a pagan. He was advanced in years. He was prosperous and settled in his pagan world. He was the only one in his culture who heard God's word. But on the basis of hearing, he risked everything to follow God. None of us has ever done anything comparable to this. We trivialize it if we imagine that we have. The faith and the following of Abraham is, oh, it's so rock solid. There is a God. Because here's what I suggest to you. Stephen tells me the God of glory appeared. What did he discover? He discovered identity. I now know, Abraham might say, based on this God who's revealed himself to me, that he is majestic and glorious and holy, and he's made me, and he's called my name, and he loves me, and he forgives me, and he's called me his own. And he found the meaning and the purpose of life with an encounter with Jehovah. And he separated because he was separated unto God. And so to lose his home and to lose his nephew and to lose his dad, he gave up the spoils of victory at one point in his life. Hard-earned, fought battle. He gave him up. I don't want him. He gave up his own plans. That, to me, is one of the most profound things about that man's faith. Yes, he had the promises of God and he had anchored everything on who God is and what he had said. And he took off and for a long, persevering, patient, enduring, steadfast time, he waited for the fulfillment of God's promise, and he saw it. It was a constant life of devotion, of separation unto God. When we get to chapter 15 and 16, Abe and his wife Sarah are going to make some suggestions. This ain't working. I know what God said, but... Yes, but how about you sleep with my handmaid, Hagar? And if God gives a son, then he'll be the heir. Sounds good to me. And they did. Ishmael was born. He had to separate from Ishmael. He loved him dearly. I think the most important thing is he, he separated from his own plans, expectations, and dreams. He kept surrendering them to God. It's the way we live. And then ultimately, as you know, we get to chapter 22, and he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. 
The God of glory appeared, changed his life. The God of glory has appeared in Jesus Christ. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. You know in the Lord's high prayer, high priestly prayer, John 17, he said, he's, Jesus said, verse 5, Father, glorify your Son with the glory that I had with you before we even created the world. What is glory? It's majesty, it's light, it's perfection and holiness. It's God's kingdom. It's his power and sovereignty and rule. His compassion and mercy and justice and truth and wisdom. And all that entered in to Abram. God established his kingdom in his heart. You have a throne in your heart and you're sitting on it or Jesus is sitting on it. And sometimes that, there's a switch. <laughs> Today, you can be God. Tonight, I'm going to be God and I'm going to do what I want to do. Because <laughs> I have some plans and dreams and desires. Right? There's a throne in your heart. Who's on the throne? The glory of God appeared and it revolutionized and changed that man, Abram, for the rest of his life. He put his hand on the plow and he never looked back. He kept depending in spite of all logical odds. He kept depending on what God had said and worshiping him, building altars and worshiping, failures, restoration, worship. It was Abram's life. It's our lives. We're going to enjoy Abram. Abraham. Can I say Abraham? We'll say Abraham. All right? Until we get to 17, chapter 17, it's Abram, right? But that's the way it works, friends. You know, just in some devotion this week, it caught my eye this little phrase where Jesus, the God of glory, appeared to a man named Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. And I love it. Matthew's response to God's grace spoken to him through Jesus was very similar, if not identical, to Abram's response. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And I love it. It says, Matthew, he arose and followed him. He quit his job right on the spot and he was getting paid well because love from God is way better than all the stuff that money can buy it's so good to live free from that to live free from what everybody thinks about me it's what God thinks about me and that strengthens me to live free from being worried about my reputation Matthew didn't care. This same Jesus who had just healed a man that was carried into his presence, a man who couldn't walk, his four friends, remember the story, his four friends carry this man in, lower him down through the Jew. I'm suggesting to you that Matthew saw the beginning and the end of that little account. He watched that man get carried in over to the house that was standing room only. They're frustrated. They go up on the roof, dig a hole in the roof, lower the man down. 
out of sight. Matthew's sitting in his tax booth, and, and the guy's like, I got to pay my tax. Yeah, never mind. I, this is interesting. Do you see those guys? There's something going on in that house. And then I watch those guys. Watch this. They're lugging that man. They're dragging him up, up over the steps, up onto the roof, and then he disappears. 20 minutes later, I don't know how long it was. I'm just making a story out of what happened. The door bursts open and out runs that guy who was on the cot. And he's running by Matthew. And Matthew's like, what happened? Jesus! <laughs> and then out comes Jesus. And he sees Matthew. I want you to follow me. Yes, sir. And he arose and followed him. But you know what caught my attention? Later in the chapter, a man named Jairus comes up to Jesus and he says, my daughter has just died. Would you come to my home and heal her? And it says, he arose and followed him. I want to follow a Jesus who will get down on my level and follow a man. It just seems amazing to me that he just did the same thing that Matthew did. He arose and followed that man because a request was made of him. A desperate request. Can you put life into a dead body? And he did. The God of glory has appeared this morning from his word to your heart, to my heart. So why don't we stand and we'll just dedicate ourselves to him. Oh, thank you, Lord. Lord, <laughs> You live in me, I know you do. I love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We thank you. Thank you for calling us. Thank you that your call continually goes out. That where sin is abundant, grace is much more available. It's, it's greater. I thank you, Lord, that there's forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. You've called us to follow you. Pray we live a life for your glory, walk with you, love you, commune with you. Pray your anointing on all that, on all of us this week, your blessing on this, this week. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know. Should we do something? <laughs> uh, you guys want to sing something? Or maybe just eat some more donuts? <laughs> I don't know. Thank you, Lord. Well, thank you. We'll just, that'll close our service.